Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and each week on the show, I bring you not just information, not just inspiration, but hopefully useful action that you can apply in your life. I recommend that you listen to this show or watch the show and keep a pen and paper or the 21st century equivalent of that on hand and make notes. I know when I listen to fascinating people like the guests you'll encounter on High Energy Health, I always have something to take notes in my hand. And I find that if I take those notes, if I get those insights, and I then translate those into action, I can take action on those points, I can apply them in my life. And then I find using those leverage points, I'm able to up level various parts of my life. So listening and being inspired is great. But then writing down and taking action on what we share on high energy health is powerful. Another really great use of the show in your life, general inspiration, and raising your whole level of attention. And I know that what we pay attention to makes a huge difference, input and output. Input correlates to output. In the old saying from the 1960s, computer coding, garbage in, garbage out. So I have to confess, I watch football games. I occasionally watch Netflix series, but I don't watch only those things. I make sure I watch, I listen to, I fill my awareness with positive emotional, spiritual inputs. I've just been having a blast listening to the Tao Te Ching over and over and over and over and over again. And Lao Tzu's words are 2,000 years old in the Tao Te Ching but they just are so resonant in the value they have for us today. This is a way of conditioning your consciousness. So listen to this show. Mm -hmm. Listen to other things that are really going to spark inspirational energy in your life. And by doing that, you elevate your energetic state and do that regularly. And then you gradually find yourself in training your mind and training your brain and training your neurochemistry to those higher states. So I'll let you off the hook. If you want to binge watch Game of Thrones once a year, as long as you email me in for permission first. <laughs> but I want you to really focus on that whole idea of what you put into this cranium of yours, put into your mind, into your brain, into your attention is going to condition your life. And then if you choose shows like High Energy Health, choose powerful music, choose powerful words, you are going to be putting in gold. You're going to be putting in fantastic inputs, and that's going to then shift your outputs. So make sure you immerse yourself in positive messages, positive media, positive people, and that can make a huge difference in your life. Bookmark High Energy Health. Bookmark this page and make sure you come here and make it part of your mental and spiritual hygiene. 
My guest today is Marty Watka. He's a pioneer in the field of neurofeedback and has used neurofeedback as a treatment for drug addiction, anxiety, depression, and PTSD. He's been doing this for over 40 years and has also helped develop the field with research and study and also bringing in the whole concept of ancient knowledge like the Vedas, and he quotes those extensively in his writing. His website, I'm going to spell this for you, so got your pen handy? This is a test. <laughs> your first test of many on the, the next hour of the show. The way you spell his website is W-T-T-K-E, Watka, W-U-T-T-K-E-I-P-I.com. And his book is called The Brain Sutras, Keys to the Revealed Consciousness. The Brain Sutras, Keys to the Revealed Consciousness. Marty, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dawson. I appreciate your invitation. Yeah. And I had a blast. I actually took the book with me on a retreat and was sitting by the ocean after meditating for a whole morning, giving myself the luxury of a morning. You can't do that in a usual busy workday, but when you get away for a retreat, you can have these long periods of meditation. And I then read your book and it had so many nuggets of truth in it for me. So we'll get to the book, we'll get to those concepts from the world's great wisdom traditions, but let's start out with where you came from, which is neurofeedback, because you've been doing that a long, 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 long time, and realizing its power for transformative change. And you mentioned that, which I didn't know that Hans Berger, who invented the EEG in the late 1920s, actually was a follower of Spinoza. So I'd love to know your entry points into neurofeedback and that whole part of your background before we get into the other parts of what you talk about in the book. Okay, awesome. Thank you. My entry point was actually a little bit like Hans Berger. He was really interested in consciousness more than anything. And many people in this field actually have that entry point. But mine goes all the way back to my teenage years when I lived in New York and went through a heavy-duty drug addiction and through that whole nightmare experience of treatment programs and so on, overdoses. And what happened was in a, in, when I was 21 years old in 1978, I had a spiritual awakening experience. And you know, it only lasted maybe two minutes, as far as I can tell, but it it turned everything totally around because I was at a point where, you know, I was either going to end up getting shot or end up, you know, overdosing or whatever. And so I surrendered and spiritual experience came and, you know, it was a moment of uh, profound love, compassion, forgiveness, all those, you know, this isn't unique to me. Obviously, this happens to a lot of people who are, you know, suffering at certain stages of their lives. That made me realize that, that you know, not just me, but we're all here for a reason and a purpose, and I needed to find what that was. And, you know, it was pretty obvious to me, well, I went through this horrible addiction. I need to try to help other people move away from this this nightmare experience. I was uh, had good innate intelligence. I, I went back to uh, college and I decided that chiropractic was a good way to, to find, you know, channel this healing energy that I had. So I moved from New York to Georgia to attend chiropractic university. And after about a year, honestly, my spiritual quest was so enormous that I found my spiritual teacher in Atlanta. He was doing a lecture, and it just so happened that he had a yoga retreat center, an ashram, just two hours north of Atlanta, up in the North Georgia mountains. 
there was a yoga retreat center, yoga philosophy, yoga meditation. So I moved there and I spent a couple of years there working, doing sort of a semi-monastic life, meditating many, many hours a day. And one day I was in the local town, uh, Clayton, Georgia, and there was a psychiatric hospital there. So I decided to go for a tour. I went for a tour and I met the medical director and he said, who are you? What are you doing here? And uh, it was a treatment center. So it was drug and alcohol, post-traumatic stress disorder. He asked me, would I be willing to come in and teach meditation to the patients? So I did it after about two weeks. The patients reported to him that they were having profound experiences. So subsequently, he asked me to come on staff and asked me to design a program for them. But so my, you know, I was, what my intention was, was to help other people, you know, not have a spiritual awakening, but at least discover their own spirituality. You can't make anybody have a spiritual awakening, but you can sort of, you know, prepare the soil and nurture it, so to speak, cultivate it. So he said, yes, absolutely, uh, design a program. I realized, though, as I began to research meditation, that the key was the brain, that it's the brain that really changes in meditation. And there was some research out then. This was in the early 1980s. And everything you said in your introduction goes back to this. What do you you know, how do we change these pathways in the brain? We change it by monitoring our input and then also putting good stuff in the brain. So meditation seemed to me to be the key. But I had to lend some scientific credibility to the meditation process. Again, this was the early 80s. Nobody was really using, you know, now meditation's everywhere. But back then, especially in the North Georgia mountains, it was unknown. I went to the Menninger Institute, studied there, went to the Himalayan Institute, studied there. And I decided that brainwave biofeedback was this new emerging field, also called neurofeedback, and that we could literally teach the brain how to change through this technology. So we added it to our treatment program. The patients who were there in the hospital not only went through their traditional treatment program, but they went through neurofeedback. And the results were profound very, very quickly. So I did that for 17 years, and the experience was you know, invaluable for me. It was such a powerful learning experience. I could treat patients and then literally see them change. And I had an entire staff, nurses, doctors, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, and got instant feedback about how it was working. And so I developed protocols for many disorders that were not yet being treated with neurofeedback, depression, disorders, anxiety disorders. After those 17 years, it, the science and the technology kept uh, developing. Like now it's light years beyond it was 40 years ago. That was my entry point. Then after I left the hospital around mid-1990s to late 1990s, I went to Europe, started teaching in Europe, trained many, many practitioners in different parts of Europe, came back to Georgia, and then ended up here in Central Coast, California, Santa Barbara. We have a big institute here, treat people from all over the world. And my goal and objective has always been the same. It's been this sort of helping people to realize their own innate divine potential and then to draw on that for their healing. I work with the criminal justice system. Recently, we had a big project, 360 parolees, California Department of Rehabilitation asked me, can we reduce the recidivism rate? These guys are you know, ending up back in prison within a year. The numbers of percentages are very high. So we started a project. Unfortunately, COVID put that on pause, but we're seeing if we can reactivate that. And we were getting very good results with that too. So, you know, my goal has always been this 
you know, because meditation is a neurological process. These people thousands of years ago who gave us mantras and meditation techniques and pranayamas and all that, they knew what they were doing. They knew the brain had to change in order for the individual to experience what is really behind the brain and what is running the brain. Yeah, we'll get into that more. And I just want to go to a slight tangent over here, which I think will be interesting to many of our listeners, which is this frequent coexistence of co-occurrence of addiction and spiritual awakening. And I'm sure you know the literature in psychiatry, that psychiatry up till very recently, in fact, the bulk of psychiatry still regards spiritual awakening experiences as psychosis and lumps them <laughs> into the same category. You know, you're hearing voices, yeah. <laughs> you're seeing things, you're having experiences, out-of-body experiences. Well, let's lock you up, right. <laughs> medicate <Yeah>. you. <laughs> it's unfortunate that's to be the attitude. But, you know, Jung communicated closely with Bill Williams, the, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they both came to an agreement that addiction was just a perverted search for enlightenment. And, you know, this notion about psychosis, I think that's psychotic, frankly. I think that's so off the mark of what actually happens. So you cannot argue with the profound changes that occur in people's lives when they have these spiritual experiences, spiritual awakening experiences across the board. And, you know, the 11th step of Alcoholics Anonymous is about spiritual awakening. So I just keep going back to that. I don't argue with anybody who thinks, uh, you know, we're all being psychotic if we meditate. <laughs> yeah. And I just wonder how many of those people who are in those addictions treatment centers, it began, maybe it began as a spiritual awakening, a very difficult one. I watched a documentary movie recently called Awakening Proud. And it was about people that had waiting experiences. And it was so interesting to watch the movie. And they began to have these, all of these were spontaneous awakenings, usually like the one you had when you were 21 years old. And usually they had a great deal of difficulty integrating them. Many of them were diagnosed. Many of them were medicated. And some of them actually did turn to addiction. So I, I just wonder how, what percentage of the population that winds up in addiction treatment began, as you say, with that perverted quest for enlightenment. And then somehow it just got diverted into those channels. So it's kind of a, a side inquiry. I don't know if there's ever been a study to analyze that, but I suspect there's actually quite a, a high percentage of people who began in those elevated states. I mean, we, we even know some of the early, early, really great teachers. I mean, the flotation tank guy, John Lilly, he was taking ketamines and being in this flotation tank and experiencing altered states. And <laughs> Well, there's no doubt that uh, in, in the preliminary stages of the awakening process, a lot of integration has to happen. Uh, you know, a qualified individual needs to help that person through the process and let them know that they're not going crazy. But, you know, that it also requires somebody who has been through the process, somebody who is already awake that I mean, a guru, that is the ideal guide if you can find one. I don't know what the percentages are. That's an interesting question, Dawson. I would have to look into that a little bit. Picking up then with realizing that neurofeedback is powerful, that our brain changes in meditation. I think now we're starting to understand how much and how fast the brain changes in meditation. In one randomized controlled trial I did, I compared people doing a really physiological form of meditation with a control group doing mindful breathing for 30 days. And after 30 days, we saw dramatic functional connectivity changes where their mid prefrontal cortex just basically shutting down and their insula, which is a seat of compassion, gratitude, pro-social emotions was totally lit up 
And this that's after 30 days. I mean, when I showed those scans, those composite scans of the experimental group to neuroscientists, they were like, oh, well, we know what these are. These are Tibetan monks with 10,000 hours of practice. And it's like, no, these are just Joe Blow off the street that, that have done this effective meditation for 30 days. And it's really changing their brains. It's just remarkable how quickly our brains can change. Yeah, yeah. there's no doubt. You know, meditation is self-directed neuroplasticity. And just like, you know, anything, anything that we do with our brains habitually is going to do several things. It's going, the brain's going to devote more real estate to that particular emotion or thought or behavior. And, and those areas of the brain do get bigger and more robust. Yeah. Yeah. Literally changing your brain by changing your mind, changing your practices. We're going to go to a break right now, but please stay tuned. You're listening to High Energy Health. We'll be right back in a few moments with more on this and a whole bunch more remarkable insights and information. So we'll see you back again in a moment. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. And as you can tell, I love doing this show. I love being here with you. And I generally love waking up in the morning and diving into life. So <laughs> thanks for diving in with me. Thanks for enjoying this moment with me. Thanks for choosing to uplift your day by filling your world with uplifting messages and thoughts and ideas and concepts and also reflecting on which ones you can apply in your life. And what we've heard in the first segment is absolutely amazing, that addiction, what we think of sometimes as being that those patterns that lead people into absolute despair and often early death actually can be the gateway to spiritual awakening and have a relationship with spiritual awakening. That thought alone is so hopeful and profound. So your action item right here, email a link to this to anybody you know suffering from any kind of addiction, whether it's just a, a mild addiction, whether it's addiction even to their own cortisol and drama. So whether it's an addiction to their own hormones, whether it's addiction to a substance, email them a link. Take, love that person enough to share this information with them that addiction can be a gateway to evolution and understanding. And I'm going to spell Marty's website for you so you have it handy. Again, it's so his last name is Watka, which is W-U-T-T. K-E, and then I-P-I, and his book is called The Brain Sutras. Marty, I'd like to pick up again on something you mentioned earlier, which is that these ancient meditative techniques are actually able to change the brain, and that these ancient sages who developed them, they didn't have MRIs, they had no EEGs, they couldn't measure gene expression or salivary cortisol, but they knew what they were doing. How is do you suppose that all happened all those millennia ago? From what I understand, a lot of this came from the rishis, at least in the Vedic tradition. The rishis, rishi means seer. So they, laboratory was their own mind and consciousness, their own bodies. And they basically were realizing internally what was working. And I always like to cite the eight limbs of yoga. Many people out there have probably heard of that. 
And that, if you look at the structure of the eight limbs and the, the hierarchy and how they successively go from one level to another, you see that it's it's a neurological process. So, you know, the eight limbs begin with the yamas or the restraints, sort of like the moral codes, the Ten Commandments almost. And essentially what that begins to do and what we've measured, it begins to quiet down the limbic system, the primitive area of the brain. Why is that important? Well, because if that part of the brain doesn't quiet down, when we begin to activate higher states of consciousness and higher areas of the brain, that part of the brain will get in the way. It can sabotage the whole process, actually. So the yamas were very important, and uh, rishis knew it had to begin to straighten out people's moral character and behavior before they could go to higher and more advanced technique. Then came the niyamas, or the the uh, observances or restraints, you know, purity and so on. So this is about purifying the body. And then moving on from the next thing is what most people uh, think yoga is, and that's the postures, the yogic postures, asanas. And that is basically to, to get the body to become more flexible, number one. But the more flexible and resilient the body becomes, the more we can move to deeper levels of the mind and brain and consciousness. Bessel van der Kolk has a wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score. And that's quite literal. Our body keeps the score of everything that has ever happened to us. And it could be a bad score. It could be a good score. So it's extremely important to pay attention to the body and how it has accumulated trauma, memory, stress, and so on. So the next step in the eight limbs is pranayama or breathing techniques, the control of the energetic field. And that is, again, that helps to integrate the subs, the, the previous steps. Then pratyahara or sense withdrawal, learning how to, to pull the senses within instead of them constantly going out and being involved with the outside world. And then we're ready for focused concentration, the, the next step in the eight, eight limbs. Uh, then, med then, and only then, are we more or less ready for the meditation process. Then the final stage of the eight limbs is samadhi. Samadhi is a Sanskrit word, means absorption. And it means absorption in that divine awareness, that infinite intelligence. But all those preliminary steps are quite important. We just can't bypass. I mean, people try to bypass it all the time with LSD and other hallucinogenics. It usually doesn't work if you don't clean up your act. Things can, It's like, I had a teacher once put it this way. He said, higher states of consciousness are like sunlight intensely magnifying and the sunlight will shine on everything it doesn't matter if it's a weed or if it's a flower it's going to shine on everything and everything is going to get energy of growth so in that sense we have to make sure we've weeded out our garden and straighten things out as best we can straighten out our energy and then we can approach these higher states of consciousness otherwise it's it's like you know thousand watts going through a 40 watt light bulb i think these 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 rishis knew exactly what they're doing they knew the stages of development needed to be how they needed to progress so that people could be led to these higher states yeah, and all those preparatory steps are essential as you start to move into those states and again without them. And like there's a lot of emphasis now on psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And so people are able to get what the Sufis called the glimpse, the glimpse of heaven, the gl glimpse of that transcendent state. And then they aren't able to get there without it, without that, yeah. that substance. And so that's the 
irony of, of those uh, substances, they open what I think it was Aldous Huxley called the door, the lens of perception, the doors of, of perception. And then it's like, well, okay, you open the doors, got a glimpse. What do you do now? How do you get no, there all by yourself? It's quite popular here in California. I work with a few physicians, you know, use it. And it, I think it's medicine of the future when it's understood and used correctly. But, you know, you pinpointed the, exactly what the problem is. So do you have to, you know, do an ayahuasca ceremony every weekend in order to, you know, have this inner communion? Well, you know, we prefer not to. It's probably not a good thing for the nervous system. So anyway, that it's out there. It's become quite popular here. I think, you know, those of us who are paying attention knows that, know that there's other ways. Sure. Yeah. And of course, those ancient saints and sages were able to, they, I mean, they certainly knew about plant medicine. There are, for example, there are engravings going back about 12,000 years of things like mushrooms and on Greek friezes that are two or 3,000 years old. There are things like sacred herbs that are being being used. So these have been known about for a long time, even in those cultures that are, were practicing meditation and other ways of doing it endogenously rather than exogenously, which is fancy words for from the outside, from the inside. So it's fine to use that plant or herb or drug to get there exogenously from the outside for a bit, but the whole point is to learn to develop those states endogenously from the inside. We're going to go to a break right now, but please stay tuned. You're listening to High Energy Health. For more on Marty's work, go to his website, Watka I. P-I, and IPI stands for Infinite Potential Institute. So just Google that if you can't write that long, complicated <laughs> URL down, and you will find him. And his book is called The Brain Sutras. You're listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and it's a delight to share with you every week. I'm so glad you're making High Energy Health part of your routine to bathe your mind in all these powerful ideas, powerful insights. And the ones you heard in the last segment are those alone are, are able to really shift the way you see your life, see your development, and accelerate your understanding. For more on Marty's work, go to his website, Watka ipi.com and his book is called the brain sutras so let's look now at this whole experience of that final stage of samadhi and perhaps a good entry point might be rather than to look at patanjali or ramakrishna or one of the other sages, let's ask you, Marty, <laughs> what those states look like and feel like to you. And perhaps after your first 21, first experience at the age of 21, how you began to, and when you began to be able to move there in a reliable way. Well, at first it required tremendous surrender on my part. I was at a point in my life where I was virtually homeless, physically falling apart. And so complete surrender, you know, a complete giving up of ego. And that's really what led me to the, to the first experience of that process. Afterwards, though, when I learned meditation, I learned a type of yoga, which is becoming more and more popular now because of a couple of movies called Kriya Yoga. And uh, that was brought over here to the U.S. in the early 1900s by Paramahansa Yogananda, who wrote the classic uh, autobiography of a yogi. So that appealed to me because Yogananda said, 
you know, back in the 1920s that literally there's a recording of it, the brain and the spine is the pathway to God. And I thought, well, how interesting, what a thing to say. And he said, Kriya Yoga is a scientific method to experience God realization. So that's when I found my teacher who happened to be one of the last living disciples of Paramahansa Yogananda, had lived there at Self-Realization Fellowship in uh, Mount Washington. So Kriya Yoga is a, is a technique sort of withdrawing the nerve energy, bring it into the spine and up through the spine and to the crown. And if there's a physiologic basis or, or physiologic point for accessing these higher states of consciousness, it's definitely up here in the higher centers in the brain. So once I learned how to do that from my guru and then practice the various specific technique i was able to you know consciously go into those states and what are they like you know it's the most natural because it is it's your natural state and it's a you know some people get annoyed because most gurus or teachers will say you're in it already you just don't see it there's a veil in the way and though it's 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 the most natural state and you mentioned uh ramana maharshi and some of these other saints he especially he said you're already there quit searching for it just give up the notion that you're separate from that. And now we know that when we go to sleep at night in those first three or four hours and we go into the deep delta sleep and Ramana Maharshi was very famous for saying, he said, you go into samadhi every night. That's what happens. You lose your sense of self, your ego. And by self, that's what I mean, ego. And you gain your universal self in that state so we go we and we have to you know we have to go into those deep sleep states in order for the body to rejuvenate because that's when we tap into that universal consciousness and get regenerated it is the most natural thing in the world for us where whether you know and again sounds annoying but whether we know it or not there's always a part of us that is in that it's that you know we hear it we describe it as the witness the observer that part of our consciousness that is not our mind not our body not our emotions but is working through that all those things are just the vehicle for it and we're it's one consciousness world just we are all that consciousness we look different we sound different we act different every one of us every animal you see everything that has life is that and you know as you progress and enter into those states more and more in ramakrishna's book the gospel of ramakrishna he has a very interesting experience when he was in the temple the kali temple and suddenly he realized that everything was consciousness. The water bowl was consciousness. The window was consciousness. He was consciousness. The statue was consciousness. It's all just consciousness, which, you know, guess what? Now quantum physicists are telling us the same thing. I think we need to demystify these states and realize that we're always in them, or at least we always have the potential to really uh, experience them. It just requires surrender and, a, and sort of a, a shift of perspective. Yeah, and then the ability to do that is uh, critical. And again, you mentioned there are all those preparatory steps. And then a lot of people find that it becomes easy with practice. So you do it one time, you may have that one illuminated experience. So you know there's a there there. And then you practice, you are gradually improving your ability to get there. I'm sure you see that on brain scans too, that yeah. people can enter that state. What do you, do you have a name for that state? Like uh, Max Maxwell Cade called it the awakened mind. He described it as a, a relationship between the different brain frequencies. And, and we 
found that as well. And this goes back to what I said earlier, the limbic system has to quiet down. Traumas, in a certain sense, have to go get into the background because they're just creating a lot of static. But it would appear that it's the higher brain frequencies, what we call gamma, that seem to be the key. Now, that doesn't mean you can just create more gamma in the brain, you're going to be enlightened. In fact, that usually backfires. You have to, again, Maxwell Cady saw that there was a relationship between all these different frequencies. There had to be a certain balance. And then he correlated these different ratios or relationships to different states of samadhi. There are, obviously, samadhi is just not purely absorption. There's nirbhikalpa samadhi, there's sabhikalpa samadhi, so there's different samadhis. And they do all correlate with specific brainwave frequencies and brainwave regions. So, but you're right, the practice, you know, the practices are essential to get the brain into the right zone. And over time, as I said earlier, meditation is self-directed neuroplasticity. Every time we meditate, we're utilizing this profound principle of neuroplasticity and then guiding it to higher states. Yeah. And the beauty of it too is just practice that shifts our brain function. And after you do that, uh, enough, then the brain, literally the hardware pathways are different. And uh, one of my favorite book titles is the book by Richard Davidson called Altered Traits. Mm-hmm. And he talks in that book about how we begin by having these states, elevated states of samadhi, and eventually they become traits. We've just done enough firing and built up enough wiring to where that is literally our default mode of being in our mm-hmm. brains. So no longer going back into the, the caveman brain, into the stress mode, into the limbic driver that we've had before, we're simply able to enter those states that are default trait. And that is a a big change. And so that's why I think what I want you to take away from this, as you listen to Marty and I, is just consistency of practice. Just do it. Keep on doing it. There are days where you have great meditations, days where you think nothing's happening. Just keep on persisting. And every one of those times you're firing, you're wiring, and eventually you're laying the neurological groundwork for that kind of shift into those States. We're going to go to a break right now, but please stay tuned. You're listening to High Energy Health. Check out Marty's very short book, but very powerful and insightful book called The Brain Sutras. I read it on a meditation retreat and loved it. Found so many nuggets there, even though I've been reading this stuff for 30 or 40 years. So uh, you'll love the book. It's very, very many, a bunch of short chapters, easy to digest. So not a hard thing to read. And then you can just meditate on those ideas in your meditative periods. So the book, and then please stay tuned. We'll be back in just a moment for the concluding segment of High Energy Health. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I am your host, Dawson Church, and I love sharing with you every week. As you can tell, this is fascinating and you can apply it and make dramatic shifts in your life, not just in your life slowly, but in your life quickly. Your life changes rapidly when you apply these principles in your life. So go ahead and use them and then also make listening to the show part of your spiritual hygiene for the week, just part of what you do to uplift yourself and put you on the right path and give you great ideas. For more on Marty's work, go to his website, which is com, And his book is called The Brain Sutras. Marty, one question that 
people often ask is about meditation styles. There are so many meditation styles. The Max Planck Institute in Germany differentiates them into about four. In my book, Bliss Brain, I actually identify seven different styles of meditation, schools of meditation. And the big question is that some of them we know produce really rapid change in the brain. What is going to get you there quickest in your experience? In my experience, techniques that have to do with breath awareness, you know, the breathing patterns, you know, how rapidly we breathe, how we breathe, and so on, is intimately connected to what our mind is doing and what our brain is doing. And most meditation techniques incorporate some kind of breath awareness or breathing technique. So I think that that is the key. Now, you know, you can tie different things into breathing patterns, like uh, most people are familiar with mantra. Uh, TM uses mantra, script syllable with inhalation and with exhalation. But we know that it, that it doesn't have to be Sanskrit. It doesn't have to be mystical. It can be any attractive word or phrase that the meditator chooses. The key, though, is this practice of you know, every time the mind is distracted, it runs off to tangential thinking is to keep bringing back to the breath, back to the mantra. That, in my experience, has been the the uh, most effective meditation process that I've learned and I've taught. I taught that in the psychiatric hospital for 17 years, not only to the the patients that were in the hospital, but the whole staff used to come to morning meditations just before lunch. And it was very effective. This was a, a people from all walks of life, all types of addictions and so on. And everybody could do it by the time uh, their inpatient stay was over. Then there, you know, there are more advanced breathing techniques. And I would, you know, I caution some people about some of them that are out there now, because they can be very activating you know, literally activating the sympathetic nervous system, which you really don't want to do. There is a book called The Mystical Mind, which does in fact show this paradox that certain higher states do have a sympathetic uh, activating component and then a parasympathetic, a deeply relaxing component too, which is paradoxical, but it's, it seems to be a key. But in the beginning, you really want to focus more towards this parasympathetic, what Herbert Benson coined uh, the relaxation response. That is the key in the beginning of meditation. It is, you know, to, to bring it all together, it's a natural process. The, you know, the sages tell us that there's a part of us that knows exactly how to meditate if we just follow uh, these essential keys. So breath awareness, mantra if we need. And then I always recommend to people if they have the characteristics and personality for it to have some kind of devotional component to their meditations whether they have a picture a flower a candle whatever um you know not to get into strange things but the heart has to be involved in the meditation process the heart is opening is essential and the heart and the brain have a two-way communication channel and I, i'm a big believer in heart math and heart rate variability it's another very important tool for the meditation process so so again just coming back to i think breath awareness certain breathing techniques alternate nostril breathing is an excellent preliminary to meditation and it helps to clean out the channels and balance the hemispheres in the brain so that, that's another very good one yeah, all of those things together are good. Uh, the heart math director, Roland McCready, the science director, once told me that they find that when people are in heart coherence, when they induce heart coherence, and then they meditate, they drop out of heart coherence. I've always been curious about that phenomenon. 
that meditators drop out of heart coherence. I've hooked people up, and I found the same thing is true. I didn't believe Roland at first, so I hooked people up myself and did did the test. And it's absolutely true that people drop out when they're meditating. So I think that the breath, actually, the right kind of breath, actually, is more likely to keep you in coherence when you're meditating. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the implications of that would be, but um, I will occasionally recommend uh, heart rate variability or a heart math to some people. But you know, and then then again, there there are people. And there's even been studies that report negative experiences with meditation and who those people generally are, people who have a lot of trauma in their history. For instance, uh, we work with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the criminal correctional department. And, you know, you're, you're risking some real reactions when you ask somebody with a lot of unresolved conflict and behavior and shame and guilt and so on to close their eyes and quiet their thoughts. What's the first thing that happened? All kinds of memory and reactions tend to emerge. So for those people, we do walking meditation. We do working in the garden meditation. We, you know, and they're even now, which is remarkable at some prisons, they're using therapy dogs. They're having the inmates train therapy dogs. So they get this big, big boost, oxytocin and start empathizing and having compassion and so on and that's a that's a real important key for those guys then eventually they can learn how to actually close their eyes and experience the meditation process so yeah, for so people who can't do it you know move yeah. qigong tai chi all those are good moving forms of meditation yeah so that's the one qualifier is that if you have trauma then you want to make sure you use a form of meditation that's appropriate to that marty i'm so grateful for your work thank you so much for sharing your insights thank you for everything you do thank you for everything you are and your generosity of spirit and information your your love for people and for this work shines through i'm grateful you're doing it thanks again thank you dawson pleasure to be on your show please join us every week for another episode of high energy health till next time be healthy be happy. Love yourself. I'll see you then.